The following programme contains discussion of suicide and is intended for a mature audience. This is Documentary on News Talk. Producer Caroline Mudingo-Dipanda examines how institutional racism affects black Irish, mixed-race Irish and African migrants in Black and Irish Navigating Racism in Ireland. On the 31st of May 2020, spontaneous demonstrations in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement took place across Ireland. The events prompted questions about the denial of racism in the country. From industrial schools to the education system, how does institutional racism affect Black Irish? mixed-race Irish and African migrants in Ireland. This program contains references to suicide. I am culturally Irish of mixed Irish and African ancestry, Nigerian ancestry. I was born and raised in Ireland. I would consider myself like Nigerian Irish, to be honest, or mainly Nigerian sometimes. So I came to Ireland when I was, I believe, about seven years old. I'm from Cameroon. Uh, born in Zimbabwe, and I'm living in Ireland for the past 20 years. The programme contains references to racist language that some listeners might find upsetting. I am... Um culturally Irish, of mixed Irish and African ancestry, Nigerian ancestry. Philomena Mullen, Assistant Professor of Black Studies at the Department of Sociology, Trinity College, Dublin. I was born in Dublin. I was born in Hollis Street Hospital. I was sent as 17 days old um, through the courts to in an institution in Galway, um, in Loch Ray, called St. Bridget's. Um, I arrived there at 17 days old, and I stayed there until I was four years old, and then I was transferred because it closed down. I went to St. Anne's in Boosterstown, in County Dublin, and I lived there until I was 16. I think Often what happened was that colour became an issue when there was a crisis or maybe an argument or a fight with another child. Um, and then colour was always brought up, you know, and the N-word was used or you were told to go back to Africa or you were called a savage. And that's when it became kind of a, an issue. And I think the, the problem within the institutions was that the the people in charge didn't take it seriously. They didn't recognize it for what it was. They didn't address it. They didn't allow you to kind of name us as racism. So it was always considered to just be a thing amongst the children, you know, and something that gets said in the heat of an argument, but it was never addressed. So you were always left kind of with this sense that either you are being oversensitive or that it was 
similar to the type of name calling that would go on if somebody had glasses and they might be called specky four eyes or maybe somebody had something wrong with their teeth and they would be called names in that way. So it was equated to that level of name calling. But I suppose having done the, the research, what you understand within that context is that the people who had glasses or had something wrong with their teeth weren't in an institution because of those issues. But the majority of children who were black and mixed race were often in institutions because of their color. So it had a much bigger impact when it was kind of drawn upon to, to demean or to devalue. When, when it came to name calling, it had a bigger impact, I think. And, and for other children within other institutions, their day-to-day -day life um, in many cases was tougher than mine. And I know from one person who took part in my research, um, they were in an institution in another part of the country and they had been sent there from an institution in Dublin. And they didn't go to school from the time they arrived there at the age of 10 or 11. And they were put to work in the kitchen. And the nun in charge um, came down one day to check on their work in the kitchen. And they were told that the, the child was doing a, a good job. And the nun um, responded by saying, well, it's just as well um, because there are nuns upstairs. If they knew that a black pig was washing their dishes or putting food on their plates, they wouldn't eat off them. So it wasn't just a, a thing that happened amongst children. It was quite a serious systemic uh, devaluing and degrading of children and using their, their skin color um, to do that. So it, it had serious impacts for, for many people on how they could relate to themselves in terms of their skin color, how they valued that kind of racial inheritance and how they developed as adults um, into the future. So how do you, or how did the women and how did I kind of construct a sense of who we were or have any value or the way the, the black side was often demeaned, you know, through racialized language and racist kind of language that came from both the other children at times and also from the adults who either were in the institutions or other adults who had peripheral roles within the institutions, also sometimes foster parents, um, made very racist remarks to the children. So it was looking at how you survive that, and then how do you have any kind of a healthy acceptance of who you are? And how do you understand who you are within that context? So you're Irish and yet you're constantly being told you're not Irish because you don't look Irish. So it's, it's very damaging to, to the psyche of a child, you know, who's constantly trying to, to find acceptance and to fit in and to, to be part of a community to see how they can contribute. But yet you're constantly told that you don't belong.
Ashling O'Neill, founder of One Life Ireland, a mental health awareness network established in the memory of her daughter, Mia O'Neill. Like Mia shunned away from her, her culture, her African culture, didn't want to know, didn't want to know anything about it, didn't want to celebrate it. I never wanted to go there. Um, wanted to be white. Wanted to scrub off her skin. Uh, just not liking any of her features. Not Just not liking herself at all. She was a true, true, pure soul. Like she said to me, that time I must be evil. There wasn't an evil bone in her body. There wasn't an evil cell in existence when it came to her. She cared more about other people than she did about herself. But she just got tired. Tired of a world that couldn't accept her for who she was. And she was special. And she touched so many people when she was here. She went to a school in the middle of the countryside. And like, it's not that she didn't enjoy her time in primary school. She did. And there wasn't that many instances of racial abuse from others in primary school. Not nasty racial abuse. Do you know what I mean? Where you actually know you're being a racist. Kids might uh, do things like touch her hair. Mia used to have really tight tight, coarse afro curls um, and I loved doing her hair um, and she would only let me touch her hair that was it she never went to a hairdresser ever um, she went once and was traumatised when she came out because they cut too much of her hair off and um, so I was literally her hairdresser I did her hair all the time and I loved doing it and she loved me doing it and she would even say to me I said you know I was doing her hair and I said what are you going to do Mia when you leave home how are you going to do your hair? And she said, I'll, I'll just come back. And I was like, yeah, okay, no problem. So, um, and I miss that a lot. I miss sitting down. That was our bonding time um, for me and Mia. Um, you know, when teenagers are, are, are growing up, they kind of tend to leave your side and kind of go off out to find who they are and their friends are more important than than their parents at that stage. And um, But that was our bonding time. You know, when I would do her hair, it would take a good few hours. You know yourself, it takes a good few hours to do hair. And, um, you know, we would have to wash it and condition it and brush it all out and put in your leave-in conditioner and then, you know, trying to find your curls or else she might want it straight or else she might want to braid it, depending on what she wanted. Um, so, yeah, it would be a good few hours, but that would be time where we'd sit down and we'd have great talk, do you know, and um, I miss that a lot. I miss that bonding time with her. I, I do it now with my little daughter. Um, as, I, as I said to you, I was just braiding her hair before I came in here. So yeah, in school, me, Mia didn't really... Children would touch her hair and squeeze it, which in the beginning she didn't find, when she was younger, she didn't find it offensive, but it's very invasive. Like now, and I used to tie Mia's hair up in a, literally a bun on the top of her head. Right, because it was just the easiest style. People would squeeze her hair and say it's like a pineapple. You know, you look like you have a pineapple. They would say, uh, they'd sing the song from SpongeBob. You know, um, she lives in a pineapple under the sea. You know, like a uh, call her call her hair a pineapple. Now she used to laugh it off, 
and things like that. But then she came to me one day and she said, I don't like this pineapple on my head anymore. You know, can, can, can we try something else? I said, what do you want to try? And she said, I want you to straighten it. And I said, you want, you don't want your curls. And she was like, not anymore. I don't like them. And this is when she was around 11. And I said, are you sure? Because I think your curls are beautiful, you know, and they're you and they're so different. And she said, mom, the problem is I stand out. I don't want to stand out. I want to blend in. I don't want to be noticed. Just want to blend in with the crowd. And I was like, okay. And I cried straightening that hair. It was so emotional for me. Because she was trying to get rid of what was natural. What was so beautiful. That I was so proud of. That she should have been so proud of. She should have been so proud of that hair. So from the age of 11 until she died, she wore her hair straight. Mia started to self-harm in primary school um, when she was around 10 10 she started self-harming and I didn't know about it at first and then she'd obviously been doing it a while uh, because I noticed at that point she was already you know showering herself and taking care of herself and you know so you know and getting conscious of her body so didn't like to like me to see her undressed or anything like that so one day I happened to just walk into her room and she was lying on the bed and her top was actually kind of up a little bit and I could see kind of scratches on her stomach and I said to her, what's, what happened to your stomach? And she said, oh, um, I was going through bushes. Mia was a real adventurer and she loved to like go into the, into the fields and walk through fields and see, could she find, you know, at that age of 10, you know, fairy forts and could they find, you know, uh, find a place where they could make a den or, you know, things like that. She loved being out in the muck, real tomboy and always going through fields and stuff. So I didn't think much of it. She said, oh, I scratched my stomach on a branch when I was, you know, in the fields the other day. And I was like, okay. And then like a few weeks later, I could see more scratches and I said to her, no, there's something going on here. Like you're not injuring yourself that much going through fields. And I sat her down and she admitted it to me then that she cuts herself to ease the pain of what she feels inside. I found her on the day of the 6th of September. That was nine days after she told me to organise her funeral. Um, So that day was a typical Friday. I hate Fridays now. It's always a reminder of Mia. So it was a typical day. She got up, she went to school. They have a half day on a Friday. They always finish around uh, one, half one. She came home. She had a phone call at about three o'clock. And this phone call made her very upset. And I heard a bang upstairs and I went up the stairs to check on her and I opened her bedroom door and she was kneeling beside her bed. And I said to her, are you praying? She never answered me. And it was only when I looked back 
I just looked at her face. I knew she was gone. You know, and I think it's essential we make sure that more is done in schools. Schools are becoming more and more, you know, cultural. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot more ethnicities in, in all the schools now. And I think it's important that they are represented, that those those cultures are represented and and that should be embraced and it should be celebrated and it should be a positive thing, you know, taught to children at a young age um, so that we break the cycle of parents that were maybe raised in racist families from raising their children to be racists. I was born and raised in Ireland. I would consider myself like Nigerian Irish, to be honest, or mainly Nigerian sometimes. Bucky Adebowale, Vice President of the Student Life at Menus University. Racism is so nuanced when it comes to schools. Maybe when I was going and maybe before that time as well, where you would see a lot of microaggressions not only come from students, but also come from, you know, um, teaching staff members. Um, and this is probably down to the fact that maybe there's a huge barrier between intercultural understanding. I think a lot of staff members in institutions in Ireland have a huge lack of understanding of people who are, you know, maybe of different ethnicities or come from different countries, especially black, um, you know, related countries. They don't understand that. And that in itself, I think, perpetuates enough microaggressions. It's blatant racism. There's, there's a lot that come from that misunderstanding and this lack of awareness about different cultures. I don't know if I have any specific incidents per se, but I think I could probably boil it down to just like a lot of comments in passing coming from students. I think the biggest issue with that is that those racist or racial discrimination comments being passed without reprimand. I'm working full-time as a vice president for equality and citizenship within the Union of Students in Ireland. The Union of Students in Ireland is a very large body or organization that represents over 374,000 students across the island. Me taking up the role is being the first Black person to ever sit in that executive committee. So I'm the first Black person to sit in the role itself as equality, um, vice president for equality and citizenship. But I'm also the first Black person to you know, sit on that executive in its 62-year history and also the first Black person to run and win. Like, it's, it's a crazy kind of history. So it's a lot of first, first, first. The Irish school curriculum includes two novels, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, the N-word is used 48 times, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. The N-word is used 16 times. The position that Yari would have is not that like these books should be just like binned and or like burned or whatever. Miriam Poisard, founding member of Yari, Youth Against Racism and Inequality. But to us, like they're still obviously historically important material. However, the issue for us is first uh, the question of like whether someone should say the n-word out loud in a classroom reality is even like young black people would not read it out loud in a class
So I came to Ireland when I was, I believe, about seven years old. Alicia Ray, singer, songwriter, rapper. And um, to my understanding as to why we relocated was for better opportunities for education. Um, as well as that, my mom at the time was pregnant with my little sister and she has hydrocephalus. And, you know, with research and, you know, finding out, you know, where would be the best country to raise a child with a disability such as hydrocephalus. Um, you know, Ireland was one of the top countries and I guess, you know, my mom decided to move here for that and, you know, a chance, a chance in life. We were brought into a hostel in Dublin city centre. Um, it was called Kilmacourt and I think it was near Charlemont Street or in or around that area. We were only there for about two weeks um, while getting our paperwork sorted out. That was also the worst direct provision center. It was a hotel, hostel type of situation. We had shared toilets, shared diners. Um, my mom, my big sister, and myself were put into one room. We had a bunk bed. And I remember it was just weird, like having to share toilets. There was like multiple stalls and showers in like one toilet. There was two main toilets, one on one end of the hall and one on the other end of the hall. And I'd say maybe there was about 20 minimum residents per floor. And for our case, it was quite, um, we we're quite privileged in the sense that we were able to share a room with someone we knew, like our family. But I know like some of the other kids that I met there, they were sharing rooms with like strangers, um, which, you know, it's a bit weird, like, you know, sleeping and living and cohabitating with someone you don't know. The three direct provision centers that I've been at, and Mosney, Julianstown. I don't, I never forget where they are. You know, Kilmacourt was city center, Dublin, Athlone, Lissy Woolen, um, and then Mosney was Julianstown accommodation center. Day to day, I mean, we would get picked up. Uh, a main bus, a Mullins bus from Mosney at the gate. The downside that came with getting a Mosney bus was people outside of Mosney had seen all of us migrant kids coming from one bus. They started building a stigma around it. I guess in school, that's when you realize you're a bit different because we didn't realize that the fact that we had our own bus was kind of um, secluding us. Like it was taking us away from society. Even though there was different buses and they looked similar, they just knew this was the Mosney bus and we started we, we've, we've been called names we um I believe there was a lot of there was a lot of like um covert racism within the schools towards people who lived in Mosney um and like don't get me wrong we were able to get education basic education um primary school secondary school but when I was living there, you know, going to uni at the time wasn't something that was possible for people in direct provision. Luckily, when my sister got her results, we got our status. We were granted our status two weeks before my sister got her Trinity results and got accepted to Trinity. But we always look back and think, oh my goodness, like if two weeks prior we weren't granted our status, does that mean my sister wouldn't have gone to Trinity, got her undergrad, then went to study oncology for Trinity, got her master's? Would that have not happened if the law wasn't passed? Or even at the time, the law, it wasn't in the law. So if we didn't get our status, maybe she wouldn't have had the opportunity. Maybe I wouldn't have progressed to go into uni to study nursing. 
but it was nice to hear a couple years ago that it was passed and my friends who are still there have a chance now to go to college they don't have to think when they're in secondary school or leaving sir what's the point of doing it anyway or any kind of negative emotion towards it University of Sanctuary Island, UOSI, is an Irish initiative to encourage universities, colleges, and other educational institutions to welcome refugees, asylum seekers, and other migrants into their university communities. So far, eight institutions have pledged their support to newcomers, among which University of Limerick, University College Cork, Maynooth University, and Trinity College Dublin. But I guess the negative part of getting education was just like the bullying, the racism, um, the discrimination. I mean, there was times that we were told to wait outside. like, And it wasn't like everyone was told. It was like, oh, can all of ye, you know, like, grouping us, can we wait outside? And I remember one time it just shrugged me the wrong way. I've never been expelled or anything, but the one time I was suspended in school was based off this incident, which was me feeling like I've I've had enough of this shit. Why is it that every other white child or anybody else can stay inside the school and wait for their bus? And it's pissing rain outside, you know? And this is something that happens probably every day because we live in Ireland, you know? The weather isn't fantastic all the time. Why did, why were we picked on to wait outside? And I remember that happening and the caretaker coming and saying we should all wait outside. And I was like, no, I'm not waiting outside. Like, it's raining. Like, because obviously it's raining outside, you know. I'm hardly going to stand outside when I'm, I, I'm always waiting for the bus here. We do this all the time. I may be in third year or fifth year right now. I've been doing this for four years in the same spot. So all of a sudden we, we need to wait outside. So me being who I was at the time it didn't work well for me I was like I'm not going nowhere and then he grabbed my shoulder and I told him to F off and I got suspended for telling a caretaker to F off because I felt like not only was he physically like he physically assaulted me in a sense that he grabbed my jumper on my shoulder trying to shove me outside but also because I felt like it was unfair because not everybody in the building was kicked outside, but because we were the Mosni kids, we were the Mosni children, we drove on the Mosni bus, we were in direct provision, we didn't have the same rights, we didn't have papers, we didn't have a status, we didn't have rights, we were told to go outside. Documentary on News Talk. This is Black and Irish Navigating Racism in Ireland. One of the most traumatic time what that had happened was when I was like in my undergrad in fourth year and I lived in a house where it was just full of microaggression. Sandrine Ndairo. Sandrine is originally from Rwanda. She moved to Ireland in 2006. PhD candidate in contemporary African literature at the University of Limerick. Do you know like where they were used to me being like the only black person in the house but if if when I brought home like a black friend, like they had to like hide everything just in case he robbed them. And you know, when I confronted them and I was like, do you not see like where this is wrong? Because if any other person was to come into the house, 
you would leave your phone there anything like this and it just all stemmed kind of that like racialized anxiety like when you're just so used of stereotypes so like stereotypes about like black men or just black people in general but then I think it's like they had known me for a long time so they just didn't see my blackness in that regard so they weren't threatened with anything like that but then once there was like another black person it kind of interfered with it there so like I think that was like the one time that I saw how microaggression works in Ireland because like I was old enough to know that what's happening is wrong you know like that this isn't they're not kids like we were all um 23 we're all just about to finish college so I think like that's kind of when like it really stuck to me and I took the initiative of just like moving out of the house and everything like that because before when anything racist has happened I've just brushed it aside and been like I'll move on I'll do this but I think when if you're constantly living in that mindset and I think like when it comes to microaggression it's one of the hardest form of racism to prove because it can just be he said she said you know they could have stated like oh we just didn't feel safe we just took this and it's like why why so I think um I removed myself out of that situation and like once that happened I was kind of more aware of like different little microaggressions that I would get so like um I'm a PhD student and the first thing that everyone is always like oh wow like your English is so good like even though I have like two degrees in English now do you know and like I always say it's like with my white friends like that's never questioned do you know and I'm like that's a form of racism because again it goes back to that racialized anxiety when the black woman is just put into this black box that they're not going to get out of and that's one that it isn't one with education like that's just not something that is associated with the black woman and then that's where there's like that racialized anxiety by being like oh your English is so like you speak so articulate you're like oh I can understand you like oh how are you doing your PhD in English and all this it wouldn't pass if you're speaking to a white woman about that. So I'm uh, born in Zimbabwe and I'm living in Ireland for the past 20 years. Joytendai Kangare is an adult learner representative on the AONTAS board. A-O-N-T-A-S, AONTAS is the National Adult Learning Organization. She co-founded Roots in Africa and Ireland. Racism in, um, in adult education scholarship. So for a long time, um, adult education has been found to, to be linked to social justice and the civil rights movement. Um, I think it's because when people go into adult um, education, they've had life experiences, they know what they want, and there's more dialogue be between adult learners and, let's say, the, the lecturers or academic staff that are in that area. So there's been that link that we already know where we stand, we've read literature, we have a greater understanding of how the world works about these privileges, but it is also not immune to racism. And this is, this, like institutional racism is, is embedded in organizational structures. Um, and according to Hayes and Colin, um, it's in the teaching, it's, it's in the teaching strategies. Uh, we talk about the Eurocentric way of teaching. We also find that um, within the whole spectrum, um, in terms of, I suppose, in graduate project uh, programs is that admissions to postgraduate studies and retention of people of color is, is very, is, is limited. So there is the, the privilege of a very few scholars can go in and say, let's say do their PhDs. And if they do, they are not retained in, in the institutions. In asking who's, um, 
whose role is it in, 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 in tertiary education to, to be anti-racist? So because I think it's Angela Davis who said that it's not enough to be, not, to, not just not to be racist, but you have to be anti-racist. And that starts with the de decolonization of the mind. And it is my feeling that, that faculty mem members should and, can, and should have a key role in combating uh, racism and preparing, preparing learners in working more to bring texts that encompass or talk critical thinking about diversity and race relations in who they hire. Paul Melia and Dr. Mick Kerrigan assessed Ireland's population in those terms. Ireland is becoming more diverse, with the bulk of population growth over the last decade made up of ethnic groups other than white Irish. An analysis of census data from 2006 and 2016 reveals that while the number of people who classified themselves as white Irish rose by almost 210,000 over the decade, those who referred to themselves as belonging to other ethnic groups increased by more than 250,000. Some 1.38% identify as black, and numbers rose by 46% over the decade. And yet, this diversity isn't reflected in the teaching profession, in the public service and politics. I'm from Cameroon. My parents are from Cameroon. They moved, my dad moved to Ireland first and then my mom and then eventually I came over. Um, I've been living in Ireland ever since, but now I just moved to England. Alex Mboa, primary school teacher. I studied in Mary Eye in Limerick. Like Mary Eye is a very, very small, tiny little college. I think there's two or three colleges where you can become a primary school teacher anyway and that's one of them and it's one of the biggest ones in Ireland um, and it's very Irish like very traditional it was a bit lonely so I think I was one of the first Irish black teachers because when I arrived there wasn't any black people around um, definitely I was the only one in my year group out of 400 and something I just didn't really understand their culture that much and I'm sure they didn't understand my culture because I didn't play camogie or hurling or that kind of stuff but I did manage to find a group of friends that related to me. I didn't get a job in Cork, I applied I think in every single school in Cork that I could. I got one interview, I didn't get that job um, and then eventually I did start applying around Ireland and I got well, I had an interview in Dublin got that job and I think I was there for about a year and, and here I wasn't a permanent contract so you have to apply at each at the end of each academic year to apply again so after my first year I really liked the school I applied again and I didn't get it so I was really really upset and that's why I decided to start looking here elsewhere in Ireland and that's why I'm in London now. <laughs> Access to full-time teaching positions in Ireland is regulated by registration with the Teaching Council. A new research published by Rory McDade and Imran Nolan, Barriers to Recognition for Migrant Teachers in Ireland, reveals that between 2009 and 2014, 
less than 1% of new primary school teacher registrations were of teachers with qualifications from outside Ireland. Researchers suggested that the application process for teaching positions in Ireland is difficult to navigate, especially without local knowledge and contacts. In 2017, Dr. Rory McDade established the Migrant Teacher Project, MTP, to help primary and post-primary teachers who were educated outside of Ireland to secure work here. Race equality in the higher education analysis is the first ever race equality survey report commissioned by the Higher Education Authority. Dr. Lucy Michael conducted the survey between December 2020 and January 2021. The ethnic pay gap really stands out. 66% of ethnic minority staff are under €60,000 per annum in salary, uh, compared to a a much lower uh, level of white other and white Irish. The report highlights that 35% agreed with the statement that Race inequality exists in Irish higher education. 71% of white are signed to a full-time contract as compared to 48% of minority ethnic staff. Respondents across all groups described reporting and witnessing racial or ethnic discrimination against minority ethnic staff. However, some respondents complained that the mechanism to tackle this were ineffective and HR processes are very inefficient in finding the solution to the problem of racism in the workplace. The Irish Network Against Racism, INR, has expressed major concerns at the government's failure to show political leadership in the fight against racism in Ireland. The INR is currently developing its own alternative national action plan against racism. The 2019 reports, we recorded 530 cases um, and 174 of those cases uh, accounted for hate speech. Patricia Munazzi, policy officer of the Irish Network Against Racism. 112 of those accounted for hate crime and 101 cases of those accounted for illegal discrimination and 130 were others. But what uh, the numbers really show is that women and children are mostly targeted when it comes to issues of racism and racial discrimination. The 2020 report, um, we recorded 700 reports of racist incidents. 334 of those uh, accounted for hate speech, 159 of those accounted for hate crime. My first experience of racism happened when I was in secondary school. Catherine Osikoya, first-generation immigrant originally from Nigeria. And then the other incident that happened was um, to my father. He was running um, for a campaign in Galway to be um, one of the TDs. Um, So he was like, we're so proud of him, you know, like he's trying to make a change within his society. And he was putting up his posters all around Galway. And then on our way back from school, after we had put it up the day before, we came back and his poster was defaced with racial slurs. And it just, it became really evident that like racism is very present in our day and age. 
we cannot talk of racism and racial discrimination without looking at intersectionality of, of it or any policy analysis that does not include the intersectionality of race, gender, and other forms of oppression does not adequately explain the experiences of how black women are oppressed and subjugated. When there's a person that wants to report an incident, is there a victim-friendly desk at the police station that understands the cultural differences of women who walk in and want to report? You see that during the pandemic, uh, there was an increase in terms of gender-based violence, you know, in in families. Uh, the people that we work with, you know, tell us, you know, especially now that we are conducting a survey on the preparation of the National Action Plan Against Racism, they inform us that, you know, when they report matters, they feel that they that report, they don't feel safe. They do not trust the system. They think that it will not make a difference. So this is why they do not report matters. And as you might know, a lot of uh, women, um, particularly from ethnic minority backgrounds, you know, they have precarious visa statuses. Some of them are still in the direct provision. So they are afraid that if they go to the police to report incidents either as victims, bystanders or witnesses, then they will be asked about their visa status, whether or not they should be in this country. And that is really worrying because then that affects, you know, uh, the ends and the outcomes of justice. So we need to ensure that there is a firewall between, you know, the criminal justice system starting from the policing to the you know to the different uh, court systems that exist so we need a new design of a system that takes everybody on board a system that embraces the diversity that exists today in the in the irish society we cannot continuously uh do these piecemeal policies that does not really approach racism and racial discrimination from a holistic approach. There's just not enough help available on the mental health side of things, um, which is something that I'm also very proactive about. Eschling O'Neill. Seeing if we can make changes there as well. But it's a very slow process and with COVID and everything, you know, a lot of everything is slowed down. It, there's a long road there in making changes in racism, mental health. From October to November 2020, that was a, there was during the Black Lives Matter protests, you had loads of petitions that were signed to actually reform the curriculum, to make it more diverse, to uh, challenge racism in schools. That was just a key issue that kept popping up, which is not uh, surprising because people leading the protests were mainly young black women from schools. So obviously that was a key issue that was coming for us. Miriam Poiza. We had a teacher action in front of the doll where we handed out a letter with our demands to the Minister of Education, Irma Foley. And the letter was signed uh, online by over 500 people, mainly like young people in schools. So uh, huge solidarity out there as well. So the first demand uh, was to have the histories of travelers, people of color and immigrants featured in the national curriculum, because that's not the case. And the second demand was to make anti-racist training compulsory for all primary, secondary and third level teachers. We looked at how to decolonize or why we should decolonize the curriculum, why black studies is important, why we need to have black studies on the curriculum. Philomena Mullen, assistant professor of black studies at the Department of Sociology, Trinity College, Dublin. And broaden out the, the knowledge that's presented as valuable within the academy and if kind of trickling down from that and extrapolating from that the knowledge that's required in 
lower secondary um, and even maybe primary schools um, that kind of undoes the image of blackness as pathologized or as criminal um, in the way that it has been criminalized and pathologized until now. We'll look at the contributions that have been made by Africa, look at how the West has treated Africa and Africans through enslavement of people, through uh, discrimination in terms of access to employment, to education, um, and also the devaluing of the knowledge that has come from Africa and also from a global kind of black diaspora, um, how that knowledge and contribution is constantly um, devalued or denied or degraded um, in, in many ways. We've looked at black intellectual source. We've um, introduced students to people like Du Bois, who they've never um, had an opportunity to, to hear about. And we've looked at also pre-colonized Africa and the kingdoms of Africa, the kingdoms of Kush, of Aksum, of Zimbabwe, of Ghana, and all of that. So we've introduced the students and it is really just a, a dipping a toe in into black studies um, as an elective. But it seems to have been very successful. We've looked at also how um, black men and women, the, the stereotyping and the hypersexualization of the black body. So the students have really responded really, really well. There's been a, a lot of anger at times from, from many students that they've never ever um, been exposed to this knowledge before or how a lot of the knowledge that is there and, and has been produced by black people um, globally has been denied the, the, I suppose, the, the recognition that it deserves. I think by keeping any knowledge off the curriculum, you have to ask yourself why, or why would you do that if people are contributing? But then those who, you know, are, are the, the ones who decide what knowledge is valuable and those who hold the, the knowledge they're the ones who are who, who control what we know you know they control um, what they decide is important what they decide is knowledge what they decide uh, the claims that are made by knowledge you know and who has the right to make those claims um, so yes I think the education system as it stands denies children um, a lot in terms of not exposing them to, to more um, earlier. You were listening to Cook It by Barbara Flood, remixed by Marco Graham, Home is House by Marco Graham, Shining by Alicia Ray, Coming Home by Alta Bloomer. Black and Irish, Navigating Racism in Ireland was produced by Caroline Moutingo-Dipanda and was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme. You've been listening to Documentary on News Talk. Listen back on Newstalk.com.